0: Still no M.L. Laurie, Um, get your paper after class. You keep not getting it. Um, It's okay, but it's, you put work into it, I put work into it, now it's your turn to put work into it. Um, Secondly, now that you know that incredibly important thing for the exam, we can move on. This is a joke for the people who came in late so they, they would think that they would miss the incredibly important thing for the exam. It's like, now that you know that, now that you know that if you memorize all the vote numbers in Michigan for all the parties, for all tomorrow's parties, too. Okay, um, so uh, speaking of papers, which we weren't, um, you, I'm going to give you an option for the second paper, not for the third, but for the second, which is um, a memorization instead of a paper writing option. Um, wait, you don't know what the memorization is yet? All of Jane Eyre. Done. Okay, good. Uh, no, um, three possibilities for memorization, and only three. No, you can't suggest something else. Um, I mean, you can suggest it, I'll just laugh.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> So if you, want to, if you want to give me a good lap, suggest so something else. Three possibilities for memorization instead of a paper. Um, I would recommend, the one thing I would recommend about memorization is that um, if you do the memorizing, it's really hard for us not to give you an A on it. Um, that is, you can come in knowing that you're going to get an A. Um, because you don't have to be like um, Lawrence Olivier um, or um, just some fabulous actor doing it. Um, acting ingenious, you just have to be able to recite the poem. So the three possibilities are the Intimations Ode, which is what we talked about on Monday. So that's about 200 lines long. Um, all four invocations, that is to say, not counting the invocation of book four, but the invocations to book one, three, seven, and nine of Paradise Lost. So all four of them. Not one of the four, not two of the four, not three of the four. No! But in this incredible offer, it's all four. Um, Or the poem that we're going to spend most of our time on today, which is Shelley's Mont Blanc. Um, So you can do that. You can memorize that. If you do that, um, you would recite it um, in office hours alone unless you um, have a flair for the dramatic and want to recite it in class, which is fine. Um, but it's your choice. You can recite it, um, to your, um, section leader alone or in class to everyone. Um, and that would be instead of the second paper, not instead of the third. The third has a research component and you have to do that one. Um, but the second paper, you could do a memorization instead. So just saying. All right. You have a sheet. Yes. What's the situation with the second paper? Like what would be, what's the prompt like? It's like the prompt for the first paper, (laughs) um, but you don't have it yet. Yeah. Um, would the memorization we do around the same time that the paper be due. Yeah, but I, we're, we're willing to be flexible on that. Um, so basically, I don't. what I don't want you to do is, look, I'm fine if you do the memorization by the end of um, the semester, that is, by the last class. But don't use that as a way of just putting off the work, thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just memorize this later. So um, officially, it'll be due the same time, as the second paper, unofficially you can take as long as you need, but I don't want that to be um, what lawyers call an attractive nuisance, um, which is that it seems like a good idea until it's the end of the semester and you still haven't done it. Um, so if, it's, if you're thoughtful about this, you can take till the end of the semester, um, and that is... I urge you to be thoughtful about it if you decide um, that you're going to take more time rather than less. Don't use it as a way of giving yourself more time, because it, that's like going into credit card debt. You will regret it later, um, a lot later. Um, so you can. That's fine. Um, end of the semester. Um, but officially, the same time the second paper is due. Um, so memorization, if you want to do that. Um, I'll repeat this or email me. I'll put it on Latte just um, to be clear. Um, but it's those three possibilities for memorization. Okay, you have a sheet. The sheet has two sides. Um, it's not a Mobius sheet, um, and um, but it's a sheet. And um, the, on one side is a passage no longer in the Norton Anthology. Um, they retire some of the great poems um, because that's the way they roll. Um, But some of them you can get on their website. So on one side are a couple of pages from Shelley's greatest poem, um, The Triumph of Life. uh, One of the other of the greatest poems of the last two or three hundred years. The title is extremely misleading because life is the villain in this poem. poem. Um, So it's not a life-affirming poem, quite the reverse. Um, it's an extraordinarily grim poem based in a lot of ways um, on Dante's Inferno, in which it turns out that this world is hell, helium, hell. And no one knows the reference? This is hell, helium? Okay, at some point when you have time, look up Strindberg and helium. Um, so. Um, In The Triumph of Life, what Shelley does is he writes in a form called Terza Rima, which is the form that Dante um, invented for the Divine Comedy. Um, You'll see the form in a moment. Um, And Dante in the Divine Comedy represents himself, Dante, that is, there's the character Dante in the poem. He's actually named Dante um, in the poem who is guided through hell, purgatory, and heaven by Virgil, the great poet who lived 1,300 years before him. Um, But he meets Virgil because this is a poem of the afterlife where you meet the dead, um, and he meets a whole lot of dead people. Um, And Virgil guides him through hell and purgatory. Um, Virgil cannot go to heaven because Virgil is one of the damned, although um, one of the least damned. He's damned because he is a pagan poet. Um, But he's not suffering except by um, um, lack. He doesn't have the joy of the saved, but he's not being harmed or tortured in any way. Um, he's, he's wistful, but he knows the truth, and he's a great poet. And he leads Dante around and tells him a truth which enables Dante then to take a tour of paradise in the third part of the Divine Comedy. Um, Shelley loved Dante, as we already know from the little bits of the defense of poetry that we looked at. Um, Shelley, in his last poem, before his um, drowning, um, wrote this poem, The Triumph of Life. He did not finish it because he drowned. It breaks off in mid-line. But it's clearly not going anywhere good. In that poem, the Shelley figure meets a dead person who is his guide, through and on the spectacle that he is seeing on earth. And what he is seeing on earth is a Roman triumph in which life is the conqueror and life is leading all living beings, all human beings of all sorts, in conquest, in slavery, through the world. So life is an evil figure who is our oppressor in this poem. The person who shows Shelley around is the French writer Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who died, as he says in the poem, before Shelley was born. Rousseau is dead, died before Shelley was born, um, died about uh, 17 years, I think it is, before Shelley was born. Um, Rousseau, however, is in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, in more ways than this, he's not, but in a lot of ways, Rousseau is similar to Wordsworth, a person who thinks that nature is more important than um, human constructions and human civilization, um, believes in the supremacy of nature, and believes that a return to nature is a return closer to the truth, um, Wordsworth was 22 years older than Shelley, um, but Wordsworth also outlived Shelley by 28 years. Shelley's life, um, and, like Keats's and like Byron's, was basically um, the middle of Wordsworth's life was Shelley's entire lifespan, Keats's entire lifespan, Byron's entire lifespan. Um, Wordsworth, by the time Shelley is writing The Triumph of Life, which is 1822, Wordsworth has become the intolerable old fart that I warned you he would become. Um, He's become a horrendous conservative in every possible way, and he is now writing poems about why the death penalty is a good thing. A series of poems called Sonnets Upon the Punishment of Death, um, which are, death, that's really good. I believe in sublimity. Death is sublime. Kill him! Um, And he's writing poems about why the secret ballot is a bad thing, because then people could vote for who they wanted and we couldn't watch who they were voting. So Wordsworth has um, broken bad and not in a good way. Um, And Shelley and um, the Shelleys, Shelley's married to Mary Shelley, who has written Frankenstein. Um, They read Wordsworth's last important long poem together, and Mary Shelley wrote in her journals. She described how she and Percy Shelley were reading this poem, The Excursion, which um, if you become a graduate student and get into Romanticism, you may read, otherwise not. Um, And... um, Mary Shelley writes in her journal, we spent the day in a gondola reading this, the brand new excursion to each other, um, it is horrible, he has become a slave. So that's Mary Shelley's one line judgment on what has happened to Wordsworth. Um, here, no one's noticing. Um, um, what's happen- what happened to Wordsworth. Um, by the time Shelley is really hitting his stride as a poet. One of the poems you looked at was the poem "To Wordsworth, and in that poem, um, Shelley is basically saying, um, we both experience loss. You write about it in the intimations ode, I write about it in my sonnet to Wordsworth. Um, however, I've experienced a loss even greater than yours because you wrote this really great poem about experiencing loss, and then you turned into a jerk, and I've lost you as well as childhood. So you describe the loss of childhood really well, but then look what happened to you. And so not only have I lost my childhood, the way you describe it in the intimations ode, I've lost you as well. Um, So um, one loss is mine, he says, which thou too feelest, but I alone deplore. That is, you've had that loss. You've lost being what you once were. But you don't deplore it, which is precisely because you don't care anymore. And that's awful. So Wordsworth, however, is, as um, the critic Harold Bloom puts it, technically still alive when Shelley is writing The Triumph of Life. So instead of Wordsworth being his guide through the hell of this life, he makes Rousseau his guide through the hell of his life. But Rousseau here is Wordsworth. And I just want to point out this moment. So Rousseau is describing His own life to Shelley. That's why um, the Triumph of Life passages here are all in quotation marks. He's telling his life story. And he has a moment where a shape all light appears to him and offers him a cup to drink from, a cup full of nepenthe, which is an incident that happens in the Odyssey and then happens again in Milton's poem, Comus. Um, It's basically something you don't want to drink, but it looks very attractive. And then he drinks it, and suddenly he feels that this shape all light is treading upon his thoughts and treading them out, and we will pick up there at the top of page 22. And still her feet, that is the feet of the shape of light, no less than the sweet tune to which they moved, seemed as they moved to blot the thoughts of him who gazed on them. And soon all that was seemed as if it had been not, as if the gazer's mind was strewn beneath her feet like embers. And she thought By thought, trampled its fires into the dust of death, as day upon the threshold of the east treads out the lamps of night, until the breath of darkness reillumines even the least of heaven's living eyes. So, first of all, just notice the unbelievable bravura of the rhyming here. Terza Rima is a very, very difficult form in English. The form is each stanza is rhymed A B A tune blot soon and then the next stanza takes the middle unrhymed line from the previous stanza in this case blot and makes it the framing a rhymes of the next stanza so you have tune blot soon blot then rhymes with not and thought which is how Shelley would have pronounced it beneath doesn't rhyme in that stanza but in the next stanza it rhymes with death and breath again he would have pronounced it beneath east in that stanza, rhymes with least and ceased in the next stanza. Terza Rima is a propulsive form. It's always pushing you onward because there's always a middle line which is setting up in advance the matrix for the next stanza. So that anytime you have a Terza Rima line, it's A, B, A, and that B, in order for the B to be resolved, you have to have another stanza which will be B, C, B. But then the C needs resolution. So rima is like a slinky going downstairs. It is always moving onward. It is always, as they say, failing forward. And it's a great form, but an extraordinarily difficult form in English. Um, and there are very few great English poems in rima. And of those few great English poems in Tertzerima, Shelley has written maybe 20% of them. Um, not only The Triumph of Life, but a couple of other poems of his. So, and still her feet now, no less than the sweet tune to which they moved, seemed as they moved to blot the thoughts of him who gazed on them. That is, of Wordsworth or Rousseau, gazing on um, her feet. And soon all that was seemed as if it had been not, as if the gazer's mind was strewn beneath her feet like embers. And she, thought by thought, trampled its fires into the dust of death as day Upon the threshold of the east, that is when it's morning, day is coming on the east, treads out the lamps of night, treads out the stars, until the breath of darkness reillumines even the least of heaven's living eyes. To, breath of darkness, wonderful phrase. So when darkness comes again, even the least of heaven's living eyes, the smallest stars, get reillumined in the breath of darkness. Like day she came making the night a dream, and ere she ceased to move, as one between desire and shame suspended, I said, if, as it doth seem, thou comest from the realm without a name into this valley of perpetual dream, show whence I came and where I am and why pass not away upon the passing stream. So that is the great question. Yeah, Hannah. Hannah. She, she is a shape all light. And she just, yes, that's all we know about her is that she's a shape made out of light. And um, you have to read the whole poem. There are a lot of strange figures in this poem because it's a poem of, uh, it's a it's a phantasmagorical poem of a kind of after world that appears in this world. It's half dream, half real. So there is this shape all light that appears to Rousseau. Rousseau is telling this story to Shelley Um, and Rousseau is a dead person who suddenly appears to Shelley and tells him the story of his own life in this kind of fantastic way. So just treat it as a kind of strange... Um, pseudo-fantasy world that's being described here, but it's a fantasy world which is also our world. The poem begins with Shelley saying that he fell into a kind of trance, that he was simply sitting on the side of a mountain, and he fell into a kind of trance, he says, which was not slumber, for the scene came through as clear as when a veil of light is drawn or evening hills they glimmer. So he's simply in the world, he's tired, Thought, as he puts it, thoughts which must remain untold had kept him wakeful all night long. And then suddenly a strange trance grew upon him. But it wasn't slumber, because he could see as clearly as he could before, but it was as though a veil of light which is an oxymoron, a, con- a contradiction. Light itself was veiling the world from him, and therefore making able, um, making him able to see it even more clearly. So it's it's a sort of strange trans fantasy, um, quasi hallucinogenic. This is pre hallucinogens, at least in the um, West, at least in England and Italy, but quasi hallucinogenic experience that he's having. And then Rousseau, um, there's a he's he's. He's um, lying against a tree, but the tree turns out to be Rousseau. There's a tree of many one. Uh, The tree turns out to be Rousseau. He thought it was a tree, but it's a person. And then he and Rousseau have this conversation. And he says to Rousseau, how did you get here? And Rousseau says, let me tell my story. And now we're in the midst of that story. Um, So it's a fantasy within a fantasy, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 there's no reference to mushrooms in um, Alice in Wonderland. Um, when Jefferson Airplane or Jefferson Starship um, talks about the uh, white rabbit and the mushrooms and feeding your head, uh, that's anachronistic. Um, psilocybin mushrooms were only, became known to people in Europe, um, I think really in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, I thought, I thought. Allison Wonderland, um, he was like smoking nutmeg or something like that. Is that not true at all? He may true. have been... You don't, you don't <laughs> smoke nutmeg. I, I, I can't tell you how to use nutmeg. However, you don't smoke it. Um, he may have... I've never heard that. Um, but he had no idea that mushrooms could be hallucinogenic. Um, that was something that Lewis Carroll simply didn't know. Um, so Grace Slick liked the idea and Paul Kantner liked the idea... Um, but it was an accident. So now you've learned something in this class. (laughs) Yay. All right. So don't use Alice in Wonderland as your excuse. Um, Really? Okay. Um, So um, there is this shape all light, and she comes like day making the night a dream, and then Rousseau asks her the great question about life. He sees this figure, this supernatural figure, appearing to him, and he asks her the great question about life. If, as it doth seem, thou comest from the realm without a name into this valley of perpetual dream, that's what life would be, a valley of perpetual dream, then the question, show whence I came and where I am and why. So that's the question we all have. Whence we came and where we are, And why? Where are we coming from? Where are we going? Why? If you know that great Gauguin painting in the Museum of Fine Arts, um, that's the question in the Gauguin painting. Pretty much the same question, except in French, Um, asked by the people in Tahiti that he is painting. So show whence I came and where I am and why. Pass not away upon the passing stream. Arise and quench thy thirst, was her reply. And as a shut lily, stricken by the wand of dewy morning's vital alchemy, I rose. So he rises like a flower that has been touched by the sun. And bending at her sweet command, touched with faint lips the cup she raised. So there's the cup of Nepenthe. And suddenly, my brain became a sand. So suddenly, she, he takes a sip of this liquid, and his brain becomes like sand, the sand of a beach, he's about to specify. And suddenly, my brain became a sand where the first wave had more than half erased the track of deer on desert Labrador, whilst the fierce wolf from which they fled amazed, leaves his stamp visibly upon the shore until the second bursts. So his brain is like a beach where the deer that have been running away from a wolf along the beach have their footsteps half erased by a wave, and the wolf is still leaving its tracks upon the shore until a second wave bursts, and then it does burst. So on my sight burst a new vision, never seen Before. And then this is the part that um, is Wordsworth retelling a moment from the Intimations Ode. And the fair shape, that's the shape all light, and the fair shape waned in the coming light. So the new vision is a vision of extremely bright light, and the fair shape waned in the coming light as veil by veil the silent splendor drops from Lucifer amid the chrysolite of sunrise, ere it strike the mountaintops. So the shape all light wanes in the same way that the morning star, Lucifer, wanes in the chrysolite of sunrise, ere it strike the mountaintops. So you see the light of the morning of the dawn coming, and there is Lucifer as the morning star shining beautifully, but waning as the sun rises. So remember, the soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. And then um, the youth who daily from the east must, tra- far the, must travel, the youth who Daily from the East must travel still as nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man sees it die away and fade into the light of common day. So that's the soul as the morning star in Wordsworth. First attended by the vision splendid, but then it dies away into the light of common day. You can tell Rousseau's Wordsworth because he's telling the same story in Shelley's poems. <clears throat> poem. So, and the fair shape waned in the coming light as veil by veil the silent splendor drops from Lucifer amid the chrysalite of sunrise ere it strike the mountain tops, And as the presence of that fairest planet, although unseen, is felt, by one who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it in that star's smile, whose light is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes fan it, or the soft notes in which his dear lament the Brescian shepherd breathes, or the caress that turned his weary slumber to content. So the presence of the morning star is there for a while for the person who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it. Fantastic rhyme, planet and began it and then fan it. In that star's smile, whose light is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes fan it, or the soft notes in which his dear lament the Brescian shepherd breathes, or the caress had turned his weary slumber to content. So knew I in that light's severe excess, the light of the sun, of the new vision. So knew I in that light's severe success, the presence of that shape which on the stream moved as I moved along the wilderness more dimly than a day appearing dream, the ghost of a forgotten form of sleep. Just Be amazed by these lines, the ghost of a forgotten form of sleep, a light from heaven whose half-extinguished beam through the sick day in which we wake to weep glimmers forever sought, forever lost. So that's Shelley doing that moment in Wordsworth. And notice that he knows that that soul in Wordsworth is not the sun, that the Norton footnote is wrong that the soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. That's the soul as the morning star which fades into the light of common day. So I just wanted to show you Shelley's usage of that. Now let's turn to the um, other side and try to get through Mont Blanc. Um, So in 1817... um, Shelley and, or actually 1816 is when he wrote it. Um, the, the Shelleys were traveling through Switzerland and Italy and France, and they came to Mont Blanc. And um, they were both blown away by this mountain, the tallest mountain in Europe, the tallest mountain that um, almost anyone in Europe had ever seen. Um, much colder then, um, so covered with a glacier that extended towards the valley. It was... Um, Uh, The summer of 1816 was particularly cold because there had been a volcano, although no one knew this. Um, And it was known as the year with no summer. But it was a a horrendously cold year. Um, And they came to this mountain that no one had climbed yet. It, it, It had never been climbed with a glacier on top and just snow fields and ice fields everywhere. If you've read Frankenstein, you will remember that Victor Frankenstein meets the monster at Mont Blanc. And what happened was the two Shelleys saw this place and they were both so blown away by it that they wrote about it. Um, In Frankenstein, it's a setting for one of the most sublime scenes in the novel. Um, Percy Shelley wrote this poem. And what the poem is about, since we were talking about Alice in Wonderland, um, what the poem is about is the question, which is to be master, the mind or the world? Um, That's quoting Humpty Dumpty in (coughs) Alice in Wonderland. Um, Which is to be the controller of the other? Does the world determine what the mind thinks or Does the mind interpret the world according to its own demands? That's a question you could say that any artist, that any poet has to ask. Is art supposed to be (coughs) a faithful representation of the world? So, the world determines what goes into the work of art? Or, is art supposed to transform the world? The way the great 20th century painter Paul Clay put the second idea is art does not render what is visible, it renders visible. Art doesn't show what you can already see, it makes you see what you otherwise couldn't. So that's always a perennial question about art. Does art change how you see the world? Or is art a faithful reproduction of how we see the world? So <coughs> that's the question in this poem. There's a mind, the mind of the poet, the mind of anyone who comes to Mont Blanc, And there's the world, which in this case is the world in its most overwhelming presence as this utterly sublime mountain. So, the poem is in five sections. We'll go through them quickly. Um, If you memorize this, you'll go through it more slowly. So, he begins with a philosophical idea. And what you have to understand is, he's seeing the mountain, and his response is to produce a philosophical idea, as though the mountain is is causing a response in his mind, which is to turn away from the mountain and do philosophy. So, the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor. So the universe of things rolls through the mind, and yet what his mind is doing is thinking about that fact instead of letting the universe of things simply possess him. Where, from secret springs, the source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters. So thought adds to what it perceives as though the universe is a river. That's an idea from Heraclitus. Everything flows, Um, the shortest great sentence in philosophy. Um, Panta rei in Greek, everything flows. The universe flows through the mind. But the mind and human thought bring their own tribute of waters. The universe flows through the mind with a sound, but half its own. Such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods, among the mountains lone, where waterfalls leap round it forever, Around it leap forever, where woods and rocks contend, and a vast river over its rocks, excuse me, woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks, ceaselessly. Bursts and raves. So there I said that it's the universe that has a sound but half its own. But it's ambiguous. It might simply be that the mind with its tribute of waters has a sound but half its own. Because the universe is overwhelming it. It's not clear which is the greater. The universe of things or the mind through which it flows. We already have that as I suggested as an issue in this poem. Because Shelley is at the mountain, but he starts thinking about the mind. So the mountain makes him think about the mind. Does that mean that the mountain is the boss making him think, determining his thoughts, forcing him to think about the mind? Or is it that the mind is superior because it looks to a mountain and then it goes to thought? rather than to stunned silence by the mountain. That's the question here, and the question throughout the poem. Therefore, stanza two, thus, thou ravine of Arv. This, um, the, the predicate of this um, sentence doesn't appear for a few lines, but notice the word thus. Thus is a word of a simile, or of an analogy. And what he's saying is, you know how I just described how the mind works? Oh, here's a good simile for it. The ravine of Arve, the Arve River that flows from the glaciers at the top of Mont Blanc down a ravine down the side of the mountain. That's a good simile, he's saying, for the mind, which would make the mind the superior thing. And the mountain's simply an image of what the mind itself is. But even as he tries to do that, Even as he tries to say that the mountain is only a simile for the mind, the mountain starts taking over. Thus thou ravine of Arb, dark, deep ravine, and he can't get past it, thou many-colored, many-voiced veil over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene. Awful as in awe inspiring, where power in likeness <coughs> of the Arv comes down. So now it's not that the Arv is a good likeness for the mind. Rather, the Arv is where power disguises itself in the likeness of the Arv, comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. So he's trying to simply mention a simile and then the simile, the mountain takes over. Finally, he tries to go on. Thus thou dost lie. But again, the mountain takes over. Thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging children of elder time in whose devotion the chainless winds still come. And ever came to drink their odors and their mighty swinging to hear an old and solemn harmony. So remember, he just wants this to be an analogy for the mind, but he's completely forgotten that by now. The mountain is so tremendous that all he can do is describe it. Thine earthly rainbow stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall, whose veil robes some unsculptured image. So there's a waterfall that is that is falling in front of some rock, which is unsculptured. Art has nothing to do with this. This image is unsculptured, and the veil of the waterfall is robing it. The strange sleep, which, when the voices of the desert fail, wraps all in its own deep eternity. Thy caverns echoing to the Arb's commotion, a loud Lone sound, no other sound can tame. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion. Thou art the path of that unresting sound. Dizzy ravine. So all of this, remember, is simply his illustration of how the mind, the everlasting universe of things, flows through the mind. It flows through the mind the way the arv flows through the sublime landscape. But the sublimity of the landscape now vastly overbalances the thing it's supposed to illustrate. And that means the world is winning. The world in its greatness at Mont Blanc is completely overwhelming the mind that is trying to use it as an analogy, but the analogy is now much more important than the thing it's an analogy for. So he looks at it, dizzy ravine, and when i gaze on thee now he tries to go back to the mind and when i gaze on thee i seem as in a trance there's another trance that he is thinking about i seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on mine own separate on my own separate fantasy my own my human mind which passively now renders and receives fast influencings holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. So he's managed to make it an analogy again. I look at you, and it seems like I'm looking at my own mind, but only briefly. One legion of wild thoughts, and now he's seeing birds flying through the landscape and trying to think that they're thoughts. One legion of wild thoughts whose wandering wings now float above thy darkness, and now rest where that or thou art no unbidden guest in the still cave of the witch-poesy, so that all of this may belong to poetry itself. But poetry may not be what he controls. It may be what some supernatural being, some fairy or good witch, controls, the witch-poesy. Seeking among the shadows that pass by, so poetry and thought, are seeking among the shadows that pass by ghosts of all things that are some shade of thee. So what is poetry trying to do? It's actually trying to be able to see the mountain which so overwhelms the mind. Trying to get some shade of thee, some phantom, some faint image. So the world again is becoming the absolute power here till the breast from which they fled recalls them thou art there so I can see you until you draw back your thoughts the legion of wild thoughts everything that I see it's all up to you not up to me so he stops that stanza and it's, this is a crisis lyric like the intimations ode The end of a stanza means that he has come to some place where he has to regroup. It's a poem which is trying to do something. As with the Intimations Ode, the poet is trying to cope with a feeling of loss and helplessness, a feeling of deep despair, not knowing whence he came, nor where he was, nor why. So he tries again by going back to philosophy. Some say that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep. So it may be that when we're asleep, we actually transcend this world, that our dreams are access to a greater, higher, more remote world. So some say that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep. That death is slumber and that it shapes the busy thoughts outnumber of those who wake and live. So maybe we don't have to worry about death because we will transcend this world in that sleep of death. What dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil may be the truth of a transcendent world. So that could be, let me look at the mountain again. I look on high. Has some unknown omnipotence unfurled the veil of life and death? Maybe the mountain represents what happens after you die. Or do I lie in dream, and does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly its circles? So maybe this is the mightier world of sleep that is around me, and I see the mountain because I'm dreaming it, because reality cannot possibly match what I'm seeing Therefore, what I'm seeing must be a dream, in which case the mind is the victor. But, he goes on, for the very spirit fails. As soon as I see that, my spirit can't keep up with what I'm seeing. For the very spirit fails, driven like a homeless cloud from steep to steep that vanishes among the viewless gales and then, far, far above, piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears, still, snowy, and serene. So it's overwhelmingly large, his spirit is failing, but Mont Blanc even pierces through that, still, snowy, and serene, unconcerned, transcendent. The mind can do nothing when compared to reality. The mountain is still, snowy, and serene. Its subject mountains, their unearthly forms, pile round it. Ice and rock, broad veils between of frozen floods, unfathomable deeps, blue as the overhanging heaven that spread and wind among the accumulated steeps, a desert peopled by the storm alone. So there are no humans there. It's only a place of storms. Save when the eagle brings home some hunter's bone and the wolf tracks her there. How hideously its shapes are heaped round, rude, bare, and high, ghastly, and scarred, and riven. So this is not a place that humans can cope with the mountain overwhelms humans. Is this the scene where the earthquake demon taught her young ruin? So these are spirits that are indifferent to humans, transcendent semi-mythological spirits, the earthquake demon. Is this where she taught her young how to ruin things? Were these their toys? Or did a sea a fire envelop once this silent snow? None can reply. So there was something happened here and no human will know. All seems eternal now. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue. This is the most words worthy in part of the poem. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue which teaches awful doubt. That is doubt filled with awe. Um, Doubt in one's own ability to know the truth. Which teaches awful doubt. Or perhaps faith so mild, so solemn, so serene that man may be, but for such faith, that is with just all you need is this faith. You need nothing else, but for such faith, that would be enough, that man may be with nature reconciled. So maybe we could learn how to reconcile ourselves with nature by looking at this mountain. You can imagine this as an anti-global warming ad. Look at the world and look what we're doing to it. Look at this mountain and reconcile yourself with nature. Thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, not understood by all, but which the wise and great and good interpret or make felt or deeply feel. So now the mountain again is ministering to human morality and human need and human thought. So maybe he is going to be able to make its greatness a way to humanize it to make it human by making it the um, goal and ideal and center of moral thinking for human beings. So he tries that. The fields, the lakes, the forests, and the streams. Ocean, this is all what's not the mountain. Ocean, and all the living things that dwell within the datal Earth. Datal means complex. It's It's a word that Spencer uses, originally from Daedalus. Lightning and rain, earthquake and fiery flood and hurricane, the torpor of the year when feeble dreams visit the hidden bloods or streamless sleep holds every future leaf and flower, the bound with which from that detested trance they leap, that is when winter is over, the works and ways of man, their death and birth and that of him, the death and birth of him and all that his may be. All things that move and breathe with toil and sound are born and die. So all natural things except the mountain are born and die. They resolve, subside, and swell. But then there's the mountain, and I still can't control it. Power dwells apart in its tranquility. Remote, serene again, and inaccessible. And this, the naked countenance of earth on which I gaze, even these primeval mountains teach the adverting mind. That the mind is taught, is controlled by the mountains, and that the mind can do nothing with or to them. The glaciers creep like snakes that watch their prey from their far fountains, slow rolling on. There many a precipice, frost and snow, in scorn of mortal power have piled, dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death yet not, sorry, a city of death distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of beaming ice, yet not a city but a flood of ruin is there. So this is like a description of Milton's Hell, but it's the top of the mountain. That from the boundaries of the sky rolls its perpetual stream, vast pines are strewing its destined path because the glaciers are advancing. Or in the mangled soil branchless and shattered stand, The rocks drawn down from yon remotest waste have overthrown the limits of the dead and living world, never to be reclaimed. The dwelling place of insects, beasts, and birds becomes its spoil, their food and their retreat forever gone, so much of life and joy is lost. The race of man flies far in dread, his work and dwelling vanished like smoke before the tempest stream. So the mountain is destroying everything human and their place is not known. Below vast clay- caves shine in the rushing torrent's restless gleam, which, from these secret chasms and tumult welling meet in the vale. And one majestic river, the breath and blood of distant lands, forever rolls its loud waters to the ocean waves, breathes its swift vapors to the circling air. So it all comes from the mountain, and we humans are nothing. And he looks again at the mountain. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there! the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. In the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there. There are no humans there. Nor when the flakes burn in the setting sun or the starbeams dart through, through them, winds contend silently there and heap the snow with breath rapid and strong, but silently It's home the voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently and like vapor broods over the snow. The secret strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. So thought is governed by things. And then the final turn where he flips everything. And what were thou and earth and stars, and sea, if, to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude were vacancy. So that's a moment of the sublime. He's blown away by the mountain. And what that means is that he can perceive through his mind how transcendently powerful the mountain is. The mountain is just matter. It's the mind that makes of it something overwhelming. So if we are overwhelmed by loss, if we are overwhelmed by landscape, by nature, we are overwhelmed because of our capacity to be overwhelmed. That's the sublime. That's turning loss of intensity into intensity of loss. Here, it's loss of power becomes the power of loss. See, imagining, Shelley has imagined and gotten us to imagine something unimaginable So now we can imagine the unimaginable, and that's extraordinary. Okay, sections tomorrow. Don't forget, read as much of Jane Eyre as you can. Um, Be finished with it by Monday, and we'll uh, discuss tomorrow. So I'll remind you, but sections tomorrow. Um, Emma, you're still not here, right? Laurie, pick up your paper.